I want us to become brothers again like we used to be, and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to Three Brothers Filmcast, a monthly roundtable podcast where the brothers behind threebrothersfilm.com have substantial, nuanced conversations about film. I'm Anton Berkstrom, and I'm here with my brothers. Anders. And Aaron. My last name is the same as my brother's. And this month we're talking about Ryusuke Hamaguchi's Drive My Car, the latest East Asian art house success to be nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. But first, thanks so much for listening to our podcast. If you want to help grow the show, five-star ratings, social media shares, and reviews of the show really do a lot to expand our reach and bring new listeners to the podcast. As well, if you've enjoyed our conversations here and are writing at threebrothersfilm.com, please consider supporting us on Patreon. But now, on to the show. Okay, ramblers, let's get rambling. Drive My Car might seem like an unsuspecting charmer for North American audiences. After all, it's a slow and quiet three-hour-long drama conducted in multiple foreign languages, including Japanese and Korean Sign Language. In the film, theater director and sometimes actor, Yasuki Kafuku, played by Hidetoshi Nishijima, rebuilds his personal and creative lives after his wife's unexpected death through his new production of Anton Chekhov's 1898 play, Uncle Vanya. Drive My Car spends ample time studying Kafuku's methodical creative processes, such as his tendency to listen to his wife's recordings of the play's dialogue while driving his small red Saab 900 Turbo, which he uses to prepare his lines or his approach to directing, which involves lengthy sessions with the actors reading and rereading the text of the play. Perhaps most notably, and here we'll repeat a frequent observation about the film, director Ryosuke Hamaguchi takes over half an hour to get to the opening credits. But that choice to delay the opening credits to such a significant extent exemplifies how the film's careful patience can win over an open and patient viewer and offer plenty of artistic rewards. Drive My Car takes care to document the habits of life, and how they shape the personal and relational growth. In the film, Kafuku becomes resident director at a theater festival in Hiroshima, but the festival managers require that for insurance reasons he has to use their chauffeur to drive him. Now, this isn't a car movie by any measure, especially if you're thinking about the Fast and the Furious series, but this is a movie that loves to show how driving offers a space for thought and internal development. And the film's interest in showing that space in life is key to its effect, in my view. The film is based on a short story by internationally famous author Haruki Murakami from his 2014 collection Men Without Women, which I'll note I haven't read. However, I was more struck by the film's affection for the theatrical process and the character dynamics of modernist drama, using Uncle Vanya specifically, but also note the film's resemblance to, say, the plays of Henrik Ibsen, Drive My Car tells its story about a handful of characters in intertwined relationships, a slowly uncovering of hidden dimensions in the characters. Much of the film's success is how, once aspects are revealed, we see that they were always there. Some characters find a kind of redemption or healing. Others seemed fated by their character to ruin, as in so many plays of the late 19th and early 20th century. 
So, uh, gentlemen, I'd like to explore the film's interest in driving and modernist drama, the presence of Murakami, the significance of Hiroshima, and the film's narrative structure, and anything else you want to bring in. But why don't we start, as we tend to, with your first impressions. Anders, have you seen any films by Ryosuke Hamaguchi before? How did you Drive My Car strike you while you were watching it, and then also sort of in the period afterwards? So, I had never seen any of Hamaguchi's films before. I was aware of him as a director from the films he's had at the Cannes Film Festival in the last five years or so. But um, I had heard good things about the film. I think, Aaron, you'd seen it before me. But watching it as it unfolded, um, I was really into it. I was surprised how much it struck me. And uh, I, I was, it was really caught up in the story that it was telling. The, the hook for me is the, the Murakami Aspect Murakami is probably okay. one of my favorite writers of the last, like, contemporary writers, I guess you'd say. Although I haven't actually read the sto- short story collection it's based on. Okay. Um, but I would argue that it, the film, in, in some of its thematic treatment of, like, the concept of, like, knowing other people and the way that uh, things reveal themselves, uh, and as well as its sort of interest in, in relationships and, and things like that, are very Murakami, although the, this particular story lacks some of the sort of more surreal or magical aspects of some of Murakami's more popular works. But you definitely But I could sense. see it as an adaptation, and yeah. apparently it's not a straight adaptation. It, okay. it, it takes and combines aspects of a, a number of the stories in that collection. Oh, okay. So yeah. it, even though the, the overall plot of the, the car and the, the play and stuff is from the Drive My Car short story, some of the other uh, details are filled in from the other stories. Other, the other thing I'll note is I, I watched it with uh, my wife, and she wasn't sure she was going to be able to stay awake for a three-hour mm-hmm. yeah. Jap- Japanese language film. Although, you know, like me, she enjoys uh, you know foreign films, especially East Asian cinema. She was caught right up in it, and like from the beginning, from the sort of intriguing beginning where you're trying to figure out who these characters are and what the relationships yeah. are. And um, I want to come back to the beginning later. And then yeah. when the credits hit at 40, I think it's like 43 minutes in, she was like, what? That's just the opening? I'm like, I just started laughing. I said, yep. It, but, and that opening to me alone almost plays like a Murakami short story. And then you get into the deeper novelistic element of the plot that draws on that like yeah. prior 40 minutes as like as prologue as the necessary background for us to really understand these characters in a in a deeper way. So, you know, so let's let's hold let's hold on to the narratives now. Let's hold on to the narrative. Let's get Aaron's impression. Let's get Aaron's impression. They want to come back to that how this the opening works in terms of narration. Yeah, I so I saw it in theaters. I saw it a while back. Um I'd heard the raves about it. I'd heard a lot of people talk about it as their best film of the year. So I saw it after the top 10 lists came out. And it kind of positioned itself as the international feature of 2021. Mm-hmm. And so I have kind of an instinctual reaction against some of these movies sometimes where, like, I don't want to be caught up drinking the Kool-Aid. I, I'm always a little bit skeptical about groupthink. If everybody's saying the same thing, I'm a little bit hesitant. But the actual process of watching the film, it, it won me over really quickly through its patience, through the fact that it kind of positions this very human drama, very mundane drama in some aspects like it's it, there's nothing really exceptional about these people's lives yep. but it positions the the mystery of human relationships and um 
simply the act of living as worthy of attention and investigation and a three-hour runtime. People have been terming this movie as epic, right? Just because the length, and people always use epic as kind of a synonym for, for long. Really? I can't believe that. Wow. Yeah, and no, I'm doesn't... like, this is an extremely intimate movie. Yes, but I understand the I understand the impulse purely on the sense that it it's not like there's any lack in drama here, despite the the modest ambitions of the actual dramatics. Mm-hmm. And so it's a film that is fills out its three hour run runtime very easily through its patient observations, its repetitions, and things we'll get into in a bit, which is how, as a film, it reflects the theatrical um, experience. Yeah. yeah. But I'm like, we can get to that in a, moment, in a little bit. But I, I think it's interesting focusing so much on those first 45 minutes because they do work as a prologue, as you said, Anders, and they do set up the relationship between uh, Yusuke and Oto, who... she Oto... Because you have her voice on the recordings when he's driving the sob, because um, she obviously has the relationship with Koji, and you have the fact that she is she's the enigmatic enigmatic character who looms over all of this, and mm-hmm. she's like the mystery that the characters are constantly trying to solve, as if she will somehow unlock things. Right? It's yep. th- yeah, that yeah. first forty some minutes is so essential. And it's so satisfying in and of itself, but because it is allowed to inform all these other dynamics between these characters, it breathes so much life into like, wow, what a what a rich and full film this is. Odo is the the most like key like Murakami character, that enigmatic woman that you can never fully know, and yet who like uh, sort of dominates your life in some way is like such a key key aspect. That she that's, haunts him. Yeah, that's a very very Murakami. She functions like touch. a ghost through those recordings. Yeah, the recordings for Yusuke like and for Koji and then also for Masaki from hearing it and trying to understand what this relationship yes. is between Yusuke and her. Like, so what the, does she the, mean? the chauffeur, for people yeah. listening, if you haven't seen it, so the chauffeur driving him around, listening to the recordings of his wife, then also becomes uh, somewhat, you know, connected to these, the people. Um, she becomes invested in that relationship that she's hearing in past tense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Anton, what are your thoughts, Anton? Like, what was your, your, obviously you had the keynote here, so you've given us a breakdown of themes, but what was your just reaction in terms of, like, satisfaction as a movie? So, I was, I was very pleased with it. I'd say my, um, I'm not sure how you guys viewed it. I actually watched it in two parts, uh, just because it was a busy week, and I, I sort of watched the first hour and 40 minutes, and then it was like, you know, an hour and 20 to finish it off. It didn't lose its, um effect like i i really liked this film a lot and it was i i used the word unsuspecting because it was the sort of thing where you guys both said you really liked it but it's a patient film it's slow it takes its time but at the same time i find it very engaging like i i probably got more into these characters their relationships and just following them and figuring them out than i have in almost any other movie this year on a pure sort of just character level. Because again, like, you know, I've, I've talked about how much I like the card counter as a character study, but there's nothing exceptional, right? The character, in the, the main character in the card counter, Oscar Isaac's character is so bizarre and strange in some ways. Whereas this is a movie about just in many ways, very normal people, but it's still transfixing in some mm-hmm. But that movie is also solitary. This is about community in so yeah. many ways. Relationships. Relationships, community in the, in the theater sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, the the community building that uh, 
putting on a, a theatrical production builds. I think the other thing I would point out, just back to this comment about Odo and her recordings, it also does remind me again of this sort of Ibsen where you sometimes, although if it was an Ibsen play, you would never meet Odo in like an initial scene, but it would just be this character that everyone talks about that hovers over the entire events of the of the movie. Um, what do you guys think about this opening structure then? So the pre-credits, which I think you're more accurate, Anders. I think I said half an hour, but I think you're right. It's more towards 40 minutes, actually. And I think you're right that it, in some sense, it's its own story, but it also um, is necessary to understand the rest of the film. That's a good way of putting it. Um, it, it if you were to just watch a 40-minute short film of it, it would stand on its own as a, a sort of interesting, uh, you know, short story. But the in the context of the film as the prologue, you're right, it informs so much of what comes later. And I think it deepens it. So what I was going to say is, like, I know we've railed about long movies. It's our ongoing Twitter <laughs> uh, uh, theme and, and campaign that we need more short movies for, for tired parents and working people who, who can't stay up till 1 in the morning every night. But... Um, if this film earns its its way, yes, yes, in, in it's the very sense much that earned. I never, and I would agree with you also that my interest never flagged. I, I I found myself, I didn't find myself checking my phone. I didn't find myself getting up to go, you know, get another drink or, or use the washroom. It was, it kept me really like transfixed, and I was shocked when I was like, I I hadn't originally planned I think to watch it all in one night, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I hit the one forty one a two hour mark, and I was like. I'm, I'll go with this because I'm not tired and I want to know what happens next. I, I also think that it is, I liked how it's about real people, but I would say that, like, well, the things that happen to them are nothing is out of the ordinary. It, it also returns a little bit of the, like, I think sometimes movies these days think that um, for something to be compelling, it, ha- it has to be. Uh, you know, world shattering or, you know, it has to be a historical inflated film stakes. about yeah, people who, you know, in reality did amazing things or uh, or it has to be like fantasy, essentially, f- science fiction, those yep. kind of things. Right. Yep. Where. But the reality is that um, that betrays, I think, a lack of curiosity to be at the human condition that this film, much like, say, a Chekhov play or some of the classics of like, you know, that the literature of that era, um, the do is like they trust that human beings are interested in themselves, and they remind us that sometimes really like jarring and strange things happen in our lives that are not like fantastical, and yet but they shake us, they shake our whole world, and they shake you know. So some of the you know we can maybe I don't know if we want to get how deep into spoilers we want to get about this. Well, film. yeah. So what what's an example in the film? That okay, there's there's of? two examples I would think of. Well, the, the the major one is the the fact that Isuki discovers that his wife Odo, who who is now who dies of uh, a brain hemorrhage, had been uh, carrying on a extramarital affair with uh, another person. So he, he sees that and confirms yeah, he it. He sees and confirms it visually himself, but know. she doesn't know because it's a whole mirror shot type thing. And he quietly slips out. So that, you know, that, dealing with that and his, he never gets to confront her about it before she dies. Yeah. And he lives with that at the same time that her, as you said, her ghost, her presence is so important to his creative process and things like that. And him trying to work out like why she would do that because it doesn't seem like there was any actual real problems or damage in the relationship, right? So this is the central mystery, yeah. I think, if you want to call it that. Yep. It's a very, yep. very human one. The other one is like Koji 
accidentally fights the photographer and kills the guy. And is and so Koji's uh, Koji he's is sort of the, uh, uh, he's an actor, the star, the actor. star actor who's going to be cast in in the play, and it turns out. Oh, maybe I'll save that revelation for anyone who wants to watch the movie. But he, but one interesting thing is Koji is removed from the play so that uh, Isuki can step in because he accidentally commits manslaughter, right? And and that's a thing that could happen. You you beat a guy up because he's taking pictures of you, and then find out that a couple of days later, actually he. He died of his wounds. Oh, oh crap! You know now. Yeah. Now you get you're off to jail. But so, that's even handled in a non-sensational. No, no. Way. Like they just the it's, police it's, show it's up and like, hey, and by then the it's way. also like, oh, like where were you that night? Like, oh, so that's like what? That's what you did after we left the bar. Yeah. As if you were like real people were. No, so I I thought it did a really great job of like uh, showing the drama of real life and the fact that you don't need to have these like elevated stakes, so speaking, to actually have real deep emotional power. So when we say that it's modest, it doesn't mean that nothing happens. These things are things that will, these characters will remember for their entire life as like some of the significant moments of their life. Yeah, but I, I guess like the only thing I would say is that it also shows that part of the reason that the problem with um, the problem with our reliance on like fantasy and sort of hyperbolic or exaggerated scenarios in a lot of Hollywood films is the fact that like it just betrays that a lot of uh, filmmakers can't create dynamic or compelling characters who who seem realistic and normal, and so totally. like that to me is part of the success of the film. It's not like, it's not that it's just um, sort of capturing how there's sort of something fascinating about everyday life, but it's actually created a very fascinating set of characters in a scenario because it's the kind of movie that it I mentioned its attention to the mundane and the habitual and like these little things in life that do have a greater significance often. The way the film does that is very precise, and um, it really just brings out the significance of those aspects. I don't know, uh, what do you think, Aaron? Like, how do you how do you view the beginning? How, what do you think about sort of the tone of the film, its effect? So I, I don't want anybody to mistake us, or me specifically, as saying this movie is somehow naturalistic. It's not. It's, it's actually programmatic in its structure, and then, it's very, it's it's almost disarmingly earnest and upfront about its themes. Like, it just says that it's about exploring the unknowability of humans. It's about how art can reflect life and how the doing and con- doing of art and the consumption of art can re- um, reveal aspects of your own life while also enriching your actual engagement with the art itself. It, like, it has these things in conversations. It has these things in the actual structural setup. So it's, it's not, this is not one of those... Um, art house films which is about the things that happen in the margins things do happen on screen right and there's an actual dramatic conflict and there's a pace and there's a build i think what's so um disarming about the film is how quiet it is because it kind of takes yusuke's uh emotional tenor he's not a character who ever really speaks his mind he's almost like emotionally constipated to a point of pain obviously he catches odo with koji he can't confront odo he can't ask her what, but you know, having the affair actually means to her, and then she dies before he can do that. So he has to live with that lack of actually probing, uh, like a saw, you know, really trying to understand something. And then this happens throughout the film, where the only time he seems to be able to 
allow a confrontation actually occurs within the confines of the theater where he has like a power dynamic over somebody else and he can coach it through the art right he can use the art to explore it's the whole reason he casts koji it's the whole reason that he he um refuses for so long to actually put himself into the role because as he says in the film doing the art really actually engaging with the text is like a terrifying thing because of how much it it tells you about yourself yeah it's like a loss of control too yes exactly you have to actually surrender yourself to art if you want it to reveal its secrets as as he says you have to surrender to the text of the play yes he keeps repeating and so i think we should get into in a in a maybe in a couple minutes about its relationship to repetition and art and yeah. theatricality and things like that but i just think in terms of the character and the tone and and those aspects of the film it's it's this weird mix where in some ways it's very classical, right? Yeah, well that that's why I keep making this connection to like it just really struck me as having the a feel of like like modernist drama. Like like Ibsen and stuff are like they were thought to be like realistic yeah. when they when it sort of altered theater in the late 19th century, but when you read them they're like they're contrived in the sense of in a, not in a bad way, but like Right, the the character arcs are structured so that by the end of the play, there's been a a change or something's happened, and this that's sort of the, what I see in this movie. Yeah, and often the the contrivance is the compression of either space or time. Yeah, from real life, like nothing, very little things happen in those. But like, let's say in a doll's house, everything happens within like a few days. Yeah, yeah, right. But or it, well, in Uncle, it is, this is the one visit of you know Uncle Vanya in the play, right? Like. Yeah, yeah, in the Chekhov play that they're doing yeah. in, in this movie. And part of the contrivance of art itself is that you're taking the things that, even if they're not unrealistic scenarios, as in this film, you're taking all the things that are the key drama, like hinge points for an emotional, a character's emotional journey, and you're putting them in front of the camera, right? Like you're allowing people to witness that. You're not yeah, having things yeah. left unsaid. You're actually showing it. So they're also showing, so this... And this also connects back to what you were, the other point I wanted to make about where you were saying, Aaron, that it really allows us to see, I think, like the internal workings of, of different characters. And it's like, like, because it's always the question of like, how do you visualize or represent in a film what's going on within someone? Well, one way they do that in this movie is that you give time for characters to either be alone or just quiet with another person, whether they're driving in the car and things like that. But it's not static, like there's something going on within the characters. And it, there's that muted, um, you're seeing kind of like muted character dynamics, but there's still like a dynamic going on. Because it's right, like it's not like an in your face kind of drama where it's like people are screaming and crying and like, but it still seems like it's like emotional yeah. and deep. And uh, the only other thing I'd say is that's connecting this uh, what we see with the characters to the structure of the play what i also find br uh, sorry the structure of the movie what i also find brilliant is that i said it sort of it uncovers things about the characters but what's so great and why these characters seem so convincing is that when you discover new things about them it doesn't seem actually surprising it seems like it makes sense for that character inevitable it feels like meeting a, a, a real person yeah, and learning yeah. things about them. But I think it's interesting that you say that the the film somehow makes uh, manifest their their inner life in certain ways because I we've also said and I agree with Aaron that one of the themes of both this film and Murakami's work more more broadly is the unknowability of some people and that people hmm. will just do things that are strange and baffling and seem to seem 
to come out of nowhere. And you may never get the answer, but sometimes you can you can discover something. And but when you do, as you said, it kind of clicks, because ultimately we can't read each other's minds. We only learn about people through relationship, through communication, through doing things, through yep. ritual, through conversation, and these kind of things. So I would agree with that. Do you think with Koji that like my thoughts with Koji was that it his actions and his sort of inability to like not repeat the same mistakes is both like it doesn't make sense in the sense of you're like why would someone do this but that's also but yeah people like, do stuff like that people do stuff like that and that seems it actually makes sense in terms of like there's certain people who seem to sort of approach life that way they they seem unable to break out of the sort of ruinous circle that they've set up for themselves so neither of us have talked very much though about the whole title driving and drive my car as a as a driving movie did and you know that because uh, we've been into the beatles did you know that he really wanted to have the beatles song in the movie ah uh, the other short stories in the murakami collection are named after beatles songs so and and hurricane murakami's most famous novel is norwegian woods so yeah the name of the murakami collection is a hemingway short story collection name too yes you're right like you're he's, right. he's so reflexive yeah because I just was, when I was sort of um, reading some of, the, some of the Wikipedia sort of production history, they were sort of saying how he wanted to have that song, but he, like, it, it was just sort of, you know, securing rights to Beatles can often just be such a difficult process. I will say that I actually liked the the, the very, like, muted score of the film. And I've listened it was to it. really used selectively, score, right? But, like, it's not all the time. But I've, I've listened to a few of the pieces. It, correct me if I'm wrong. Does the first forty minute, like the the opening sequence, is it without music, and then music, the score begins in that credit the, sequence. At the credit sequence, I think so, but I can't confirm. I'd have to verify that. Was that. my that was my impression, but I, you know, there might have been a low music that I just wasn't aware of. But I, my impression was that all the music begins after that forty minutes. So what do you guys think about the car thing? Though? The car is an interesting thing. And so the it sounds, it's a weird connection, but just let's go with it. Um, it reminds me of in tr- like True Detective, specifically True Detective Season 1. Because True Detective Season 1, all the Im- in important character moments take place in the car. And what that show revealed is that cars are a, um, a fixed micro space, right? Like people are forced to interact with each other. They share the space and there is something else happening so that you have a passive investment in the actual conversation that's happening. So it's about patience. So it's actually somewhat, it's almost like a theatrical space in the sense that you're sitting there and watching and waiting and talking and engaging, but there's no, um, it's not like prodding you to engage. It's simply waiting for you. And in, it, it, cars are strange because there's, it's an intimate space and it, allow, it, it forces you to supply the actual happenings because there's something else already like automatically happening on the under level but like that that dynamic you're describing is especially the case when someone is driving you around i think you know like it's like when you're with like a taxi driver an uber driver or in this case it's the chauffeur where it's like the situation the dynamic of the car creates like this opportunity for some sort of something to happen a sitting in a car can be awkward when you're being driven around but if yeah. you, you know, if you surrender yourself to the moment, if you invest yourself in it, it can reveal interesting things about somebody else. It's so it mirrors the engagement to a text, which is requires you to be vulnerable, to to go somewhere you don't know where you're actually going emotionally, but it might be rewarding and reveal something about yourself in the and reverse. And I would say that like the experience of getting to know another car passenger or the driver 
is similar. Like, think of the number of stories people have where it's like, oh, my, my, my taxi driver, this is their life story, where they came from, where these... It allows people to share, like, moments of things. You, like, sometimes discover stuff about people that you're, like, that was, like, surprisingly intimate or, or vulnerable, like, yeah. shocking. Like, oh, I, you know, ran away from a war-torn country and here's my story. Or, you know, oh, you know, my, my ex-wife did this thing or whatever, right? Those kind of situations. And I would say that echoes my... An experience I had in my own life was that when I was in, like, late high school and in the first few years of university, my, my best friend at the time and I whenever we want to have real conversations we drive horrible burn so much gas but we we drove around saskatoon for hours just aimlessly not going anywhere in particular but because we could be in the car we didn't and maybe it's a particularly also like stereotypically masculine thing we didn't you don't have to look the other person in the face you're both looking out straight ahead you can put some tunes on we listen to so much music and you it opens the space you know you don't jump into it right away it's like it is a space that yeah allows you to like bring things up and develop these conversations as you said where there's no real like stakes or challenge or but you're both going somewhere together it's it's partly because you also have a uh, often if you, if someone's driving you like say a taxi driver you also know it's like a set amount of time kind of like when you enter into a movie theater and sit down with the movie mm, and you you yeah, have like a point. space here of uh, that you're going to be with this person you're gonna that you can have an experience or something if you if you choose to be open to it but i think that that also creates a chance for um people might be more willing sometimes to share something knowing that this passenger will get out and they might never see them again i mean it's a different dynamic in the movie in the sense that it's the the chauffeur and um yeah because you know, the director like, get to know each other they become and they, friends yeah. they become friends but they never become super but not like, like not buddy buddy friends. No, exactly. No. They're not very intimate with each other. Yes. Right. Yeah. Good point. Good point. But yes. they are. But they share a great deal about each other, and yes. th- and the end of the film confirms the connection as well. But that's yeah. rewarding. That that the fact that there is not a, a larger um, requirement in that exactly. relationship. It's just the car they share together. And the but so if we can also stuff. go back to the car though, the fact so the other thing with the car is they're not just driving once. The driving every day back and forth. So it's a repetition. So it's like the, his engagement with the text in the film. It's read the text again, read the text again. And the cast starts growing annoyed with it, right? Like yeah. they're like, why do we just keep reading? And he's like, they start, you know, they're, they do some practices, do some rehearsals. Scenes aren't quite working out. He's like, okay, op- everybody sit down, get the tables together. We're going to open and read the text again. And yeah. So like, I mean, to just to like clarify, it's it, the, all the actors are, sort of feel like, you know, we've done the read through of, the play a few times now why aren't we moving on and he keeps just holding on to that for i think they only have like what six weeks to do the yeah the 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 rehearsals, rehearsals and get two weeks of ready. performances yeah. yeah and so that's a like the fairly narrow window and like you know the the you know i've been in only sort of amateur plays when i was younger but like usually you're only doing the read-throughs for you know a few days and then you're going to start walking around blocking things out but he's just, there is that, like, he's obsessed with, like, you have to have this experience and relationship with the text before we can start to create new experiences when they have, when they're acting outside. And there's that connection he wants to duplicate. So I want about. to ask you both about the uh, the actual idea, uh, staging, and uh, concept behind his 
the play that they're putting on, the, this uh, adaptation of Uncle Vanya. Have and you guys it, read Uncle Vanya? I have not. I haven't but I, either, no. But I mean simply like the way that they're putting it on as this multilingual with subtitles. Oh, yeah. I thought that was really interesting, and it really also means that to some degree the character, the actors in the play don't understand each other. Yeah. Which is really, really interesting to think. Yeah, about. a lot of them definitely don't, right? Like there's this definitely Or at least not when they're speaking in the play. Because they all speak. They in their only know language, because they yeah. they've read their the text table exactly. in Japanese. If they do Japanese, they know what, what this person says it was all supposed in to be. Korean mean. sign language. So one of the yeah, one of the characters does the Korean sign language. I think it's interesting in the film and it works with the film, and I think it works maybe more in the film because we're approaching it as English speakers. And so the film already has that distancing. I think if I sat down to a play and people were use, speaking other languages, I would probably be, it would be a distancing effect that I don't think it would quite work in the moment in the space. Like, I'm, it's interesting like in an actual play? Sorry yeah, but if I actually sat down in a theater and expected everybody to speak English and then some people started speaking French and then yeah. some people spoke Russian and then some people did sign language, I would be, I would be kind of drawn be, out of it. I think so. It would be a distanciation, right? Like, it would be almost Brechtian. Yeah. Yeah, because it's, it draws attention to the artificiality of the performance if you'd have the subtitles. But this is a repeated thing when we're watching this movie. Which is right? maybe like something to think about that is Drive My Car, then also particularly a self-conscious example of what might be called world cinema or tra- global transnational cinema in the sense that it was a film festival film. It is, to some degree, as much intended for an international audience as it is a domestic Japanese audience. Hundred percent. Which is different from a lot of like you can get crossover type films, but this is like a film that is really like you know it's something you know I often wrote about is like there are like artists who are popular make popular cinema in their own nation. There are artists who make art films for their own you know language and culture, and then there are people who their bread and butter is the the global film festival circuit and yeah. international critics and audiences and things like that. And so how do you see this film? Sorry. I think this clarify. is more one of those like designed for the 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 uh, international art uh, yeah. cir- film festival yeah. circuit in a lot of ways. And I don't mean that in a denigration, I just I think yeah. that, that means that it it's already playing toward with those expectations around language and that not everybody's going to be, uh, you know, a native understander of the culture and things like that. I believe that the uh, short story, the theater festival he's directing at is in Busan. So in actually South Korea. And then uh, I think because of COVID restrictions, when they were shooting this, they couldn't leave the country. So they, they changed it to Hiroshima. But then that raises the question for me of like, does that setting have any significance? Mm-hmm. When we have a tale of sort of like um, characters with sort of, they're dealing with, you know, the two main characters have, are dealing with some past trauma. I just, I'm wondering like what significant, like it has to have some significance in it. Can I say well, that? Or uh, Yeah, I would say that the significance is the, the, the uh, French New Wave film, Hiroshima and More, which is about okay. two okay, people who Okay, explain that a little bit. So yeah. the film, Hiroshima and More is a... Uh, Alain Rene film from, I want to say 59, but I, I didn't look that up. Um, it's one of those early, early art house, art house French, French hits. But, it, you know, Left Bank, Alain Rene, he, you know, it was, I think it was his first film after uh, Night and Fog, like his first feature. But it's a, it like, like always deals with the trauma of the dropping a nuclear bomb, and it is about a, uh, a relationship, uh, a temporary fling uh, affair between a Japanese man and a French uh, journalist, or I think she is. If I recall, it's been about 
a, a few years since I watched it. But um, and they 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 you know they have their relationship while she's covering this uh, opening of the atomic bomb memorial and stuff like that. And she reveals then to him over the course of this brief uh, encounter her traumatic story from World War Two yeah. in France. Have you seen the film? I have, yeah. but it's been years. Yeah. Now you're you're sort of reminding me so of it. So there's this revelation of the past to a stranger in this confined period of time. In this case, it's the you know the romantic fling with a person in another country. Um, it brings up the trauma in this case of war and like uh, all that. I'm also now thinking like you know the very beginning of the film, where it's like right they're both they're, they're bo- like Odo and and him are in bed. They're both like nude, but you see like these silhouetted figures in the dark. That even to me kind of recalls that. Uh, yes, totally. Hiroshima the opening scenes of that right? film like, have the intercutting of like in the, the, bom- the bomb stuff with the conversation while they're having yeah, sex. Yeah, like lovers talking in bed in the sort of silhouettes of their bodies. Yeah, okay. So the definitely the I think the connection. I think there's definitely, definitely a, a intentional reference. Yeah, yeah I think it's also. Um, so I think I'm the only one of us who's actually been to Hiroshima. Yeah, I haven't. It's. An interesting space because if you, it's impossible to walk around that city without being aware of the fact that it was obliterated, and it's like one of you know one of two cities that actually experienced this hellfire beyond anything that anybody can ever imagine. And so it's like a beautiful city that's near the water, and it's lots of park space, and it's very um, it's very spread out and very in touch with like the bay and the hillside around it and you know you go 20 minutes south and you get to Miyajima and the Itsukushima shrine the famous tori that gets the tidal waves come in halfway through and fill it up and so it's this kind of film um setting that it comes automatically with the implication of things that linger and haunt and you can never escape that and because the japanese people are extremely reticent and extremely emotionally reserved think it's a nation that's still kind of dealing with that you know to use the word trauma of being the nation that was bombed where it's like how do you go about your day in Hiroshima and actually engage with the mystery of what that means and the pain of what that means living in a place that is born out of literal ashes of hell the other thing and it's the really simplistic (laughs) it's the really simplistic story comment but it's basically there's very few cities um, in Japan that would accommodate the idea of driving to work. Because <laughs> they're not spread out enough. Well, no, they're spread out, but like it wouldn't be the same drive if he was driving from, uh, you know, outside of Tokyo to a, from yeah. a suburb, a suburb into Tokyo, no, because you'd be through the city. Yep. But congested. the fact that it's along the coastline is completely different feeling, and it's one of the few cities that allows it while still being large enough to justify the idea of a festival and the other stuff. So it works on multiple levels, but I think it is, even if it really does work on that level of there is a, there's some whole backstory that's just implicated through the very setting itself. And then it, you know, you also get that kind of stuff with Misaki's story about her family, like her family home getting buried up in Hokkaido on this, the snowstorm and the, like the, the ruin of it. And they go contemplate it. Exactly. So it's this idea of like, well, actually things don't just get paved over. Things don't just get rebuilt. You always will have a kind of monument to the past pain that you can engage with and you can confront, but you can never actually just ignore. And you might not be able to solve. And that also links the fact, the connection with uh, his relationship with Otto, which he can never then, like, solve. Yeah. Right? Like, 
you can make peace with it but yeah it's not something to be conquered yeah so it's i think it's like it's a really rewarding film and one of the things i i get one of my final statements on it would be um theatrical like plays or even watching a performance i think great works of art in that kind of late 19th century early 20th century mode structurally and thematically they're very much about telling you how to engage with the art as you watch it and this film is like about like that too where it tells you to slow down to pay attention to watch to be quiet it does that with the prolonged the prologue the 45 minutes it tells you you're gonna have to wait for things to clarify but then it also does it with the characters to each other in his rehearsal mode the fact that he takes these drives every day the fact that it's a film it's like just wait for it it's going to reveal itself to you just wait for it you have to engage with it, surrender to it, be patient to it, open yourself up to it, and you're going to get something back. And it's it's almost like an implicit promise with the play, right? Like, the plays yeah. do this. It's it's yeah. like, and Shakespeare always put this in. He would literally have a chorus member say, like, you know, you get Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream be, like, you know, giving you an invitation to this show, and then it's going to pay off in the end. Mm-hmm. Like, just explicitly. But he's not doing that so explicitly because these are based off of later theatrical performances, but it's in there. It's this idea that, the engagement with art, you are part of this actual story and we are going to tell you how to engage with it and we are promising you that you will come to some realization at the end of it which will earn your attention and your patience. Yeah, and I, I think that's a good summary of sort of, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, the, just the importance I'd say of like, you know, it's the kind of movie I think if you like really try and just go in open and let it happen, like, you know, let the movie take its effect um if you're going in with sort of an a very strict expectation um, it might not work the same way Drive My Car is currently playing in limited release in theaters, and will be streaming in March. I can't help but compare Drive My Car to Parasite, even if they're very different films. Both have been pretty big successes in North America, and earned the Best Picture nomination at the Oscars, although Parasite was much more of a commercial hit domestically. But, you know, COVID and theaters might be a factor there as well. Even if they are very dissimilar films, do you guys see a pattern in Hollywood's engagement with these kinds of films? Do you think there's any connections between, you know, the the Parasite Best Picture nod and this? Well, I, I think it's... So I remember, you know, during the whole Oscars So White thing, they'd opened up a lot um, to a different demographics in the Oscar membership. And yep. Parasite is the film that kind of paid off that reopening. Like, the, the fact that they had a lot more international members. Yeah. The fact that they didn't just have this kind of actor producer monopoly on the actual whole um industry and so you're starting to have this understanding that you know parasite kind of paid off if a really good movie comes into theaters in north america average people actually are going to go see it and think it's really really good even if they might be you know being told about the movie in like in a vacuum might think it's like sounds really artsy or not their thing and i think drive my car even though it is probably more of an art house film than parasite it fits in a similar mode and the, the the fact that it's nominated for the oscars definitely proves that within the industry it this um north american bubble is really shrinking yeah or has been popped yeah i think that likewise um what you said that films like parasite 
showed that it's not actually just the demographic change in the academy, but there is a an interest in uh, you know films from East Asia, especially right now. Um, that's that's coming back and um because i i think that like i know that parasite was definitely one of the most talked about films for the last two years maybe because it was one of the last big films before yeah, covid yeah. hit but like a lot of like av- lots of people who aren't like foreign film buffs watched it and liked it a lot like it's it's one of those like uh now almost a pop it weirdly a pop cultural touch point you can talk about like you know yeah you can just say parasite. parasite and people yeah in pop culture, and I, people but, and sort this of know film, what again, that means. Not quite, Squid Game operates yeah, similarly. Exactly. This, you know, is not quite the same kind of thing, but um, at least along, among, it has at least spread out from just like the the hardcore cinephiles yeah. to um, the what I call the the Oscar retiree crowd. I know <laughs> that they're like the people in, in Waterloo who, and uh, maybe in Toronto, attend like TIFF or the Princess Cinemas and places like that. Um, exactly. Are, are all yeah. talking about how they went to see this, right? It's going back to that kind of 60s, 70s when the European art house that, you know, the Ingmar Bergman film, that was the perfect example back then where, yeah, not maybe not like average Joe goes to see it. But the person who likes to think they're somewhat cultured is Retired like, university professors who maybe aren't cinephiles. Yeah. yeah. And I think I, I guess the last thing I just say about that, I also think it shows that um, the international uh, festival circuit is now going to have it's going to be sort of a big player in not just sort of the best foreign film category at the oscars but we'll i think will be going you know continuing on from this point in the actual be- uh, best picture category and there's been, always been a couple right in the past we can point to it's very rare but it's very rare parasite was only the third film to win both yeah. the the Cannes film festival and best picture but, the oscars. I, but I think it's more i think it's going to be a thing and i also think if you're savvy about how they market it and bring it in to sort of like draw into that that particular audience in north america I think there's a lot of potential there, and I think it, I think it's actually just a good thing for uh, like film going in North America. Uh, likewise, while we're talking about foreign films, um, have you guys seen anything that you'd recommend? Anything that you think is a must see? Uh, and by foreign films, you know, I mean non English language, non North American productions. As we're discussing International Art House in early 2022, I watched uh, Askar Farhadi's A Hero. It's streaming on Amazon right now. And for Hardy, that's uh, he did a separation. So for Hardy right? did a separation. It's probably his biggest. Uh, I wouldn't say hit, but like critical hit. Yeah, um, it was a criti- yeah, beloved critical. Yeah, and this film is a return to him uh, working in back in his native Iran uh, after his last couple. He had a couple films in the last decade uh, in overseas in France and Europe and places, but this one it it also um, I really liked it. It's it's a couple, few things I'll say about this film. It's a so it's a more it's actually I would describe it as like a moral parable. It's not like a, a morality tale or a like a lesson film, but it's there, there's aspects of parable to it in the sense that characters do things and make bad decisions, but you can read it from multiple angles and it, it's quite rich. Like Drive My Car, it's a, a film that assumes that we're going to be invested in the the goings ons of regular people. In, in, in this case, in a, con- a culture and country that's maybe less familiar to us. Um, but it also shows how, you know, you can, a different language, and maybe they don't have the, the trappings of, like, suburban consumer culture in North America, but they're still, like, modern people with their own problems and issues, but they, they sort it through their, you know, 
uh, Iranian culture and religion and, and ritual and things like that. Um, the film opens with a very long wordless sequence where the main character Rahim is uh, released from prison. So he's been in prison um, for a debtor's prison, essentially, because he, he owes an, an 150 million tomans, which I guess is the currency in Iran, um, to his brother, ex-brother-in-law. And he has a couple days to settle it. And, and basically what happens in the film, the basic premise is all I'll tell you, is that uh, he, Rahim's girlfriend, who he plans on starting uh, marrying once he's released, uh, has found like a bag, uh, a woman's bag with some gold coins in it, and they're going to sell the gold and uh, pay back oh, his brother-in-law. Okay. Yeah. But they, it turns out that they don't end up selling the coins in part because the price of gold drops, which wouldn't have covered the amount that they need. So they pause. And then they, they decide to, they end up returning the bag to the woman who it belonged to. And then when Rahim returns back to prison after the two days, the, they, uh, the, pri- the people in the prison, like the warden and people discover it and they make it into like this sort of like local, like feel good news story, like kind of, and it gets praised <laughs> in the media and he kind of becomes a local celebrity, like for his like good deed. And they have like, you know, there's like a foundation that comes together and they're like applauding him for it. But it turns out it's like, but as in it, but his brother-in-law is still really like bitter. Ex brother-in-law is really bitter about it. He thinks that Rahim's a bad guy. He's going to ruin his sister's new marriage to another guy. And uh, and then he has this son who is, has a speech impediment. And so it's it's a very touching film. Fahadi, his films remind me of like if you made someone like the Dardan brothers a little more like accessible and like <laughs> warm and sentimental in that sense. Um, melodramatic. Melodramatic. Yeah. <laughs> But but this one's not like overly melodramatic, but it um, but it does expect. I, like we talked about like having patience. Like the opening scene, he gets out of prison and then he he walks to meet his his other brother-in-law, his sister's husband, who he's living going to be staying with, and he's actually he has to climb up these huge huge uh, scaffolding stairs uh, because they're actually restoring these ancient uh, like tombs, like Persian like twenty five hundred year old tombs, and working on them. And they talk a little bit about like the history of. Of Persia and around there, which is kind of neat, and then they you know go off in their car to like modern day, and they're like, so it's a cool portrait of like just regular people in Iran. It does there's not a particular emphasis on like uh, you know religion or politics or things like that, but more just everyday life. Even though it's inflected through the culture and uh, and those kind of aspects, which I really like. So it's very unpretentious, um, although weirdly because the main character Rahim. He occasionally like lashes out at people, and he has a short temper, and he's obviously made some bad decisions and <laughs> getting into deep debt. There are moments that the weird—I'll make a really weird comparison, and not that it's this movie is nearly as like heart attack inducing, but there are moments the intertwining of money and family and debt and stuff like that reminded me of Uncut Gems. <laughs> in that, like, you like you know, he, Raheem's almost in a short window of time. In a short window of time, right? right? Like a few days, yeah. like, and it's like. Yeah. You're like, ah, oh, don't do that. Or like if people discover this thing and then, it, you know, the things like keep falling into pay, place. But obviously it's not quite as, in, it's not as intense and it's a little. That sounds good though. I want to check that but, out. But um, no, it's, it's a great, it's a great film. Definitely check it out. There's some great performances in it. I really enjoyed the ex-brother-in-law. The actor is Bob Mosin Tanabanda. And he, like, uh, I think it was another critic who said his performance when the, when everyone's praising Raheem for giving the money back, and he's sitting there with his arms crossed, 
so tightly that a crowbar couldn't open them and he's just so angry but like that he's like this guy's a loser he's he totally didn't do this it's like it's very good Aaron, what about you? So I, I saw The Worst Person in the World last weekend. I thought it was amazing. I probably even liked it more than Drive My Car, par- possibly because it speaks so particularly to people my age. Like it's the, about this 30-year-old woman just like, you know, mid twenties up to late twenties. It follows through her through kind of twelve chapters in her life. It's it has this really literary conceit where there's a narrator. You don't know who the narrator is, but it's kind of kind of explore her romantic relationships, her lack of direction in life. That's the kind of key motivator. She's a person who's in med school, and as we learn in the prologue, she's in med school, and then she's in oh, you know, I'm actually about pe- the emotions, the people, life of the mind. So I'm actually into psychology, but no, I'm actually into art. I need to do pho- photography, and she works in a bookstore, and then she kind of, you know, she's a person who latches on to things and is so um, she's flighty. Right. Like, and we all know people like this. And so this familiarity is part of the power of the movie. It's it's extremely credible. But um, unlike, I think, so many movies that attempt to capture some kind of authenticity, it's never boring. It's never mundane in like a filmmaking sense. It is perceptive to a degree that is almost like alarming when you watch it. It reminded me of the uh, the Linklater's before trilogy, oh, yeah. where there is moments where the characters say things to each other, and you're like, you just kind of rub yeah. your head, and you're like, yeah. oh boy, like did you just like rip something? Because that I think that's what we when we we talked about this in our reviews, and we talked about this on the podcast a lot, where it's like you get to the universal through the specific, right? You dig down, you dig down, and so by being so true to that type of individual in the situations she has in kind of modern Oslo and the romantic relationships and her various fixations and narcissism, frankly, you get to this extreme degree of honesty that is like startling for people watching it. And so I think some people can go take it a little too far in in reading the film as some kind of apology for a person who is very frustrating when in actuality, it's, you know, it's just a great drama with a lot of comedic and romantic elements. And I think it does what great art should do in that it credibly portrays a human life in all of its complexities and in a way that speaks to the person who is watching it in a, in a way that's really electric. Like, I, I don't want to spoil things or anything. I think people should definitely check this out if, if they have any interest in European art cinema or even just um, kind of romantic dramas about people coming of age because it hits both those things really well Mm -hmm. but there's this one scene about 30 minutes into the movie and it's it's called chapter two cheating and the whole thing is that she's in this long-term relationship with this cartoonist and she doesn't really like the event she's at with him so she decides i'm gonna go home early but then she's wearing this kind of really fancy cocktail dress and she's looking really good and she walks a few blocks because oslo is a city where everybody walks everywhere it's very walkable it's all about parks and stuff and she walks down the street and she sees this mansion with a big party going on she's like okay i'm just you know i don't really want to go home so i'm just going to come into there and she wanders into the party and ends up having kind of a flirtation with this guy that she's instantly attracted to and they both 
start talking and drinking and spending time and the the question comes up it's like are you with someone yes i'm with someone and he's with someone and so they say okay are we cheating right now and they're like well no but what what does cheating mean and they start negotiating this aspect of like well cheating it's not cheating if we don't actually kiss but if i touch you here is that cheating and it's like well no and so they keep pushing these boundaries and it becomes this little dance almost between these characters for about, you know, five to 10 minutes. And it's so, um, it, it gets that kind of electricity of, of pushing up against boundaries and then like what transgressing, what is and is not transgressive. And I think that speaks so much to a person at that time in life where you're, you're kind of finding out what is and is not exciting to you, what is and is not um, morally acceptable and all these things. And so it's a, it's kind of a scene that captures the appeal of the movie as a whole. Hmm. So it's, it's a strong rave <laughs> from uh, me, a, a rare scenario where i go into a movie and just kind of love everything about it you've seen other uh films by true right? yeah i've seen other yokum Trier movies yeah i saw i've seen august oslo 31st which um is probably the movie the most directly connected to it it has both of these movies have the actor um anders danielson lie who he's the the cartoonist boyfriend of this one he's the main character in that one and they're very much um i wouldn't say like loose free-flowing movies or anything but they're they're very much ruminations on like what is meaningful what's not what are you left with in life when you like the decisions you make and how each um turn you know life is a street and each time you turn on it you're not turning another way and so that cuts off possibilities and aspects and what is kind of the consequences of the decisions you make let's go potter okay Okej. Ha det. Ha det. Vi åker ut, tror du? Vi åker det. Vi åker det. Nej. A Hero is currently streaming on Amazon Prime, while The Worst Person in the World is playing in limited release in theaters. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, share with your friends, and we'll catch you next time. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. I bid you farewell.